Well, let's go ahead and get rolling tonight. <clears throat> so, this is a salvation study. Uh, hopefully that's what you're planning on hearing tonight. Um, biology is being taught down the hall. Uh, <clears throat> we, um, the salvation study is an interesting study. Uh, we're going to jump into some topics I think are hard, and there's some topics I think are debatable. Uh, I don't think there's any topics here that people need to divide over, but there's some debatable topics. <clears throat> and I want you to know my goal isn't to present a preference. My goal is for us just to look at Scripture and sit under its authority. So if there's more than one point of view on things, you'll hear me say, hey, here's more than one point of view. I'm probably not going to push one over the other. I'm just going to point to the Scripture and say, you figure out what you think is the right point of view. Okay, so we're going to hit a couple of those. <clears throat> Maybe one today, but we're going to definitely hit some along the way. And I think we can... Uh, love each other through hard conversations and disagreements, though I don't think it's going to get too heated. Um, but before we jump in, let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us. Father, as we come before you, our goal um, for our time is that we grow in our love for you. Our desire isn't just to have more head knowledge. Our desire isn't to win an argument. Uh, our goal is to fall more in love with you, and your Holy Spirit through your word does that to us, especially as we t spend time together as family. So God, do that in our hearts today. Um, grow us, change us. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> All right, if you got your book, let's open up. So we did a study on the gospel last year, and that was the whole concept of God created everything, sin broke everything, Jesus offers salvation, Jesus transforms, and one day God's going to restore all things. Uh, so that was kind of like a big, broad look <clears throat> at the gospel. This is more of kind of like a narrowing in, almost like a systematic theology approach to the concept and doctrine of salvation. So we're not going to be quite as overarching. We're going to jump into some really specific things as we go through this particular study. So we'll feel a little bit different. When we're talking about salvation, the first thing that we have to spend time talking about is the fact that sin truly did break everything. So tonight our focus isn't going to be so much on how the sin broke the world, but how much how sin broke you and me and our relationship with God. Um, a good observation was made when I first walked in. Rarely do you walk into a Bible study where the first five verses are about how much God hates something, uh, but that's where we're going to start. Uh, if we don't start really exploring the darkness and the depth of sin, then when we get to the foot of the cross, we don't look up and praise Him. So I think it has to get dark before it gets light, and I think the Bible does that. <clears throat> so we're just going to follow its lead and talk thoroughly about this topic. So when I say systematic theology or a systematic theology type approach, it means you take all the verses on one subject, put them together, and say, so what do we learn from that? Put all the verses together on another subject, look at them and say, so what do we learn from that? So you're going to feel that. That's what we're going to be doing as we work through this. Results of sin. First, God is angered and displeased by sin. Uh, so some of the things I'm going to teach you aren't things that I would prefer. So I'm, I'm telling you, I don't when I teach something that the Bible says, if I got to pick how things worked out, sometimes I would pick things differently. But you and I both have to trust in God's wisdom, that he sees things from a different level than we do and in a different way than we do. So when he says things, like, it's kind of a faith thing. We trust that he sees it from the right perspective, even if it's a different perspective than what you and I might have. Here we go. Hosea 9.15 says, God hated them because of their witness, their wickedness. Jeremiah 12.8 says, God hated the rebellion of Israel. Psalm 5.5, 5, God hates all who do wrong. Psalm 11.5, those who do violence, God's soul hates. 
Proverbs 6, 16 through 17. It talks about seven different things that God hates. <clears throat> so I don't know about in your house, but in my house, I've got two kids, and I don't let them use the word hate. Because, like, very few times does somebody do something to you that your response to that person should be hate. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't happen very often. Yeah, they called you a name. That doesn't mean you get to hate them. Like, that's an inappropriate response. God here, we would not say, has an inappropriate response. God actually understands what's going on. So even though you, I, and maybe my kids shouldn't say hate very often, when God says it, he means it. And he fully understands what's going on. He's not lacking any knowledge or any heart intentions or motivations. He knows all of them. And this is his response. In the Old Testament, when God speaks of anger, he often uses the word anaph, which means to snort. It gives us like this visual picture. God is so mad that his nose like flares. Okay, like mad. That word comes up 180 times. So it's not once, it's multiple times. Here's a few more verses. He says in Jeremiah 4.4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Something that we don't think about very often, but the Jewish folks back in the day with flint knives would have known what this meant. This meant something to them. Men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. We oftentimes see God's wrath and some connection to fire. Like, that's not unusual. <clears throat> in Numbers chapter 11, I don't know if you remember this or not, but there's a point when the people are grumbling, like God's taking care of them, and they're still grumbling. God gets so angry that it says that fire just ignites on the outside of camp. He doesn't burn the people. It's like he gets so mad that that hill just gets set on fire. It's almost like he's letting some steam off. You know I mean, whatever that means for God, like, it's like, sets that thing on fire over there, okay? He does that. Numbers 11. So anger and fire are kind of connected for God. John 3:36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It stays on him. <clears throat> Romans 2, 5. Now, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So we see God hates sin and wickedness. We see that for those of us who continue in sin and wickedness, God is basically storing up wrath for a day when it will then be unleashed, like the real deal here. Like, he hates sin. So, is God just emotionally out of control? Is he having an inappropriate response? Let's look at this quote. The first is that anger is not something that God chooses to feel. His disapproval of sin is not an arbitrary matter, for his very nature is one of holiness. It automatically rejects sin, okay? Just by his nature, he must have this response to sin. If he doesn't automatically have this response to sin, then his holiness doesn't mean much. Justice doesn't mean much. Like, by his nature, he must have this response to sin. He is, as we have suggested in another place, he's like allergic to sin, as it were. The second comment is that we must avoid thinking of God's anger as being excessively emotional. It's not as if he is seething with anger, his temper virtually surging out of control. He is capable of exercising patience. So he could have set all of them on fire at any moment, but he doesn't. He doesn't have to endure with your sin or mine. 
but he does. So just because he's angry doesn't mean he's out of control. He's not the dad who just hits the child because he spins out of control. He is completely intentional with every action. It's thought through, it's done with mercy and grace and patience and with justice in light of his holiness. All of his attributes are always on display. So it is not as if he is seething with anger or his temper virtually surging out of control. He is capable of exercising patience and long-suffering and does so. Nor is God to be thought of as somehow frustrated by sin. Disappointment is perhaps a more accurate way of characterizing his reaction. Let's go to the next page. <clears throat> so man in his sin, okay, he sets himself up as an enemy to God. Okay, so we've already talked about the fact that God hates sin. We've talked about the fact that God's wrath is on those who choose sin over and over and over again. And here we see that man sets himself up as God's enemy by choosing sin. Romans 8, 7 says this, This sinful mind, the sinful mind, is hostile towards God. Colossians 1, 21, They were enemies in their minds because of their evil behavior. James 4, 4, Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Romans 5, 8 through 10 also tells us, yet at the same time, God loves his enemies. So this wrath, this anger, this hatred towards sin, there's still the reality that for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So in this world that has rejected him, God still chooses to love and sacrifices everything for the sake of those who hate him and have become his enemies. So so that side of the coin, we're going to flip and see that. We're going to spend the next three weeks on that, but we're going to spend time on this side of the coin, the fact that we have chosen to live the way we've chosen to live. And without God's help, there is no hope. Let's go to page five. All right, let's see how this works. <clears throat> we're going to do something together. Now, I'm going to read through Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. As I read through Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 in your notebook, I would like you to bracket, okay, everything you see that man does. Everything that man does, I'm going to want you to bracket, okay? Every consequence or result of his action, I want you to underline. Sometimes you're going to see just a natural reaction, like man does this, the response or consequence is that. As we go farther into the text, you're going to see man does this, and then God enacts a result or consequence, okay? Most of the text is going to be a bracket and then a line, a bracket and then a line. The text starts, though, with a line and then a bracket. So as I read it, I'll point out some of them, but you're going to catch them too as we go through. Let's start in verse 18. We might stop and have conversations as we go to, just for fun. Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. That's a line. Against what? There's an action taking place. Bracket. Godlessness and wickedness of people. Okay? So you see a line and then a bracket. Comma. Then we start with another bracket. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Bracket. Result, verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So, just starting in verse 18 and 19. <clears throat> Here it says that God has made it plain to them that he exists. Okay, let's go to verse 20 and see how he did it. And then we're going to go back to verse 18 and see how we respond to it. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, 
that is his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Okay, that's in brackets, being understood from what has been made. Underline, so that people are without excuse. So, God has revealed enough about himself. He has made it plain to them that he exists. His invisible qualities have been seen through his visible creation. His invisible qualities have been seen through his visible creation. So when you see trees, a sky, and a bird, God says that's enough for you to stop and say, someone made this. When you interact with another person, you look them in the eye, you're looking at an image bearer of God. Seeing that other person should make you stop and say, there is no way that that just happened by accident. That is an indication that there is a greater being that exists. God says that that is clear enough that people are actually without excuse. Okay? So God made that clear enough that people are without excuse. But according to verse 18 at the end, it says that what people do is they take this reality, they take this truth, and they suppress it. They suppress this truth. Okay? Now, that, ver that verb suppress there... <clears throat> is not like a one-time action. It's like a present active indicative verb, which means that it's an ongoing action. In other words, this clear indication that there's a creator is around people for the entirety of their lives. So what these individuals are doing, what we've done, is we suppress and hold down that reality with effort, with energy, for the entirety of our lives until we trust in Jesus. Can you imagine how hard that would be? It's like taking a soccer ball and you're in the pool and you hold it under the water. At first, it's not that hard. But after a couple minutes, you're like, oh, my arms are getting tired. This is taking some work. So why do people get so frustrated? Why is there just this seething, underlying amount of frustration and anger in the world? Part of it comes from people who have, are choosing to disagree with and suppress and hold down the reality of the God who has made himself so clear by what has been made all around them. That's an active thing that people are doing all the time. Okay, That's just existing in their heart and their mind at all times. Verse 21, here's an action. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. Here's a result, underline. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, although, action, although they claimed to be wise, result, they became fools. And action, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal humans, being and birds, and animals and reptiles. Verse 24 is a result. Here comes God. God jumps into the equation. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 25, another action. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who's forever praised, amen. Here comes a huge set of consequences. All this can be underlined. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their error. Furthermore, another action. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, result, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So they do not do what, they ought, what ought to be done. Action. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, 
evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Another action. Although they know God's righteous decree that they who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. Okay? So we call that like the downward spiral of depravity. Okay, it just gets worse and worse and worse. At first, God just kind of lets the natural consequences take place. Eventually, as people continue to say, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. God finally says, fine. And God gives them over to the passions of their hearts. It doesn't say that God's making them evil. It doesn't say that at all. It says God's finally no longer restraining their evil. They're allowing what's in their heart to come out into their lives. And the result is devastating. The result is devastating. So God in so many ways is restraining, restraining, restraining. And when he finally takes his hand off, this is what happens. We don't get better without God. We get worse without God. We go from tampering with evil to inventing ways to be more evil and then approving of those who do it with us. It's scary. That's this concept of the depravity of man. Without God, we truly are depraved. Here's a list of the pathways. So if we just took the underlined portions and put them in a list, here's some of the, like the downward spiral that we went through. We became futile in our thinking. Foolish hearts were darkened. We became fools, given over to sinful desires of our hearts, given over to shameful lusts and sexual perversion, given over to a depraved mind, filled with every kind of wickedness, greed, and depravity, full of envy, strife, and murder inventing ways of doing evil and approving of the wickedness of others. Yes? What about people who, who don't live like this but are still separated from God because they, they don't accept Ooh, Jesus Christ? We're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> so let's go to page six. In the middle of page six, there's a lot there. I just want you to look at the phrase in the middle. Uh, this other stuff on the page are these things called Strong's Numbers. And it's a concordance that gives you the ability to like define the Greek words if you like to. So those are just some Greek words that we found in the text if you'd like to go deeper with that. In the middle it says, this is just an interesting thought. For the Christian, Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? We as Christians have great hope in that reality. Imagine it from the other point of view. From the other point of view, according to Romans 1.18-32, we must be a also discouraged, and we should be scared for the non-believer when we say, for if God is against you, who can possibly be for you? There's a point when God allows them just to fall into their wickedness, head over heels. How scary is that moment, okay? In one end, we're so encouraged by God's promise, but when God finally, when God finally says, go ahead, do what's in your heart, how scary is that moment, okay? To know God's wrath is on that person that that person has set themselves up as an enemy to God himself. How scary is that? Let's go to page seven. <clears throat> Carol, your question gets answered on page eight, so it's coming. We'll go deeper with that. Because the question that she has is basically, what about the guy who pays his taxes, cuts his lawn? Seems like the nicest guy you know, even if he doesn't know Jesus. 
That doesn't sound like what we just talked about. We'll get there. Uh, let's talk about guilt, top of page seven. So we talked about the Holy Spirit in the last study, and we were reminded that one of the actions of the Holy Spirit is that he convicts. He convicts the believer of our sin, uh, of our unbelief, of our struggles, but he also convicts the unbeliever. In Romans 2, 14 and 15, it says that God has placed his laws into the hearts of men, all men, not just believers, but there's something innate in us that we kind of have a, a notion of right and wrong, even those who don't claim to be Christians. And the Holy Spirit can take that and prick people. Okay, he can prick people. If you wander into the wilderness and find a tribe of people who've never seen a Bible, they still tend to land on some of the same rights and wrongs that you and I land on. Okay, there's a certain level of morality that God has just placed into the heart of man. Um, so it's, it's there. But here's the thing. For you and I, when we experience some guilt, for us it's an opportunity to run to Jesus and confess our sin, confess our unbelief, confess our struggles, and get right with him. Okay, that's what guilt does. Uh, if we go to him and we receive his forgiveness and we maintain our guilt, then we have a misunderstanding of God's love. But guilt on the front end is actually a blessing so that we can run to Jesus and get right with him. For society, they view guilt very differently. Uh, it says here, many philosophers and modern psychologists believe that guilt is a result of religious thinking influence the moral rules of society. Therefore, the guilt one may feel is not legitimate because it comes from an outside, outdated, power-hungry, man-made religion or source. Okay? So you'll hear that. Like if you spent much time watching some different shows and talk shows, I mean, you'll hear that. Okay, Dr. Phil, you'll hear that. Your guilt is illegitimate. As long as you're true to the truth inside of you, as long as you're consistent to the moral compass found within your own mind and heart, that guilt is ridiculous. Just push that guilt aside. It comes from something outside of you, but truth is found inside of you. Now, that's very different where the Holy Spirit says he takes his word, which is outside of you, and uses it to convict you. Society says that's not your standard. Your standard is your own level of morality. Therefore, guilt that comes from outside of you has no weight, no worth, no power. So just try to ignore it, pacify it, subside it, okay? So what are some ways that we as a society try to disassociate ourselves from our guilt or hide ourselves from our guilt or push the guilt down and out. Here are some of the thoughts that popped into my head. One, distraction. If I wanted to, when I'm done with this class, I could pull up my phone and I could watch Amazon Prime from here to the end of the hallway and not even be quiet for the 30 seconds it takes me to walk to my office. Like we can fill our lives with distraction and noise with almost no effort. If, do you see kids with earbuds now? I have two of those kids. Like, in the house, take your earbuds out. I want to be able to talk to you. I want you to be able to talk to me. Take your earbuds out. There's adults now that I talk to. When I talk to them, they take one earbud out and they have the other one in. So they're listening to music while they're talking to me. So when they do that, I usually start talking like this so that they can't hear me. <laughs> like, I just keep talking softly until they get the other earbud out and, and they all of a sudden start talking normally like there's something wrong with them. Um, that usually works. But, like, this, we've just created all this distraction and constant noise. We also use comparison. So even if you feel guilty, you're always like, well, I'm better than that neighbor. She's terrible, okay? Like we have that thought in our head or we pick just some person out that we think we're better than. So therefore comparison makes us not feel quite as guilty. Um, sometimes we just create a new morality. That's kind of one of the things that society pushes is don't use this as your moral compass, get rid of this. Create one that you can live in. Other times we have a seared conscience. What I mean by that is 
The first time you do something and you know it's wrong, there's a lot of guilt. The second time you do it, there's a little less guilt. The tenth time you do it, you don't even notice the guilt anymore. You just kind of seared your conscious. conscience. You've just got to the point where you're used to it. You can just function and not even worry about it. So there's lots of different ways that we deal with our guilt um, and try to get it out of our lives. Um, <clears throat> depravity of man. So let's continue talking about the depravity. Well, we're just going to keep talking about the depravity of man for an hour, so we're not done yet. Um, we're halfway done talking about the depravity of man. So the Bible teaches us that sin has broken everything. But here in this class, we want to focus on how sin has radically changed everything about us, about man, about women. First, sin breaks our relationship with God. So a couple of these verses we'll look up. Some of them I'm just going to tell you what they say. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who do not believe. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who do not believe. So for those who don't know Jesus, they look at what he, who he is and what he accomplished, and they say, what a fool and what a foolish thing to do. The thing that you look at and causes you to worship, they look at the exact same person and the exact same thing, and their response is, what a fool. That's just their response, okay? What do we learn about our sin from each verse? I need a couple of people to look up some verses. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Let me see a hand. Who's got it? I need hands. Thank you. Uh, let's do Romans 3, 10 through 12. Who's got that one? Someone, someone, someone. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I'll do Romans 3, 23. I need Romans 8, 7 and 8, please. Thank you back there. Um, and now I'll do Romans 17, 9. So let me do Romans 3.23 while you guys are looking up the other one. Romans 3.23, which most of you probably know, know, just says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. That verse tells us that there's not one person that can raise their hand and say, I made it through this life without sin. Everyone has been tainted by sin and has actually sinned in their life. No one can claim anything other than to be a sinner. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Could someone read that for me? Yes. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you were formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we could have literally just spent our entire hour on just those couple of verses. Like that all by itself tells us so much about our depravity and our sinful nature. It starts off by telling us we're spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Not in a spiritual coma. Not spiritually having a bad day. Okay, not spiritually on life support. Like completely dead. No spiritual pulse. I thought about, maybe I could have or should have, but I was thinking about getting a big thing of Play-Doh and like tossing out different pieces to all of you and have one of you make a head, one of you make a body, a couple of you make it two arms and two legs and we would name him something creative like Kevin. And then, <clears throat> and we would put Kevin down here on this chair and maybe put like a piece of bread beside him, okay? The bread of life, how about that? Uh, so at any point during the hour, if Kevin would sit up, Kevin the Play-Doh boy, if Kevin would sit up and eat from that bread of life, we knew that he would turn into a real live boy, just like Pinocchio, okay? So at any point during the hour, we would be waiting. Every once in a while, we would have checked on Kevin. Kevin, how's Kevin doing? 
Okay, so Kevin would represent our spiritual deadness. I'm pretty sure, even though we didn't do it, I'm pretty sure Kevin would at no point have sat up and eaten that bread because Kevin's made out of Play-Doh. By nature, Kevin cannot sit up and eat from the bread of life. We are called here spiritually dead. We're not any better than Kevin the Play-Doh boy, all right? Spiritually dead on our own. What's that? Is spiritual always associated with good? Well, not here, because spiritually dead. So that's bad. That's associated with something bad, very bad. So I would say no. Okay? But that's a big overarching question. But just from the context of this verse, I would say no, right? There's something really bad, spiritually dead. Because we're all spiritual beings, even people who don't know the Lord. Um, so yeah, that would be not good. Another thing it says is that we've followed the prince of the spirit of the air. Like we've we follow the enemy himself. That's part of who we are. It says, by nature, we are objects of God's wrath. We've already visited that verse once. There it is again. We are objects of God's wrath. We lived our life just gratifying our flesh, doing what seemed right to us. Uh, Romans 3, 10 through 12. Can somebody read that? Okay. So there is no one righteous. Dan, is there one righteous person without Christ according to this, or is there no one righteous? There's not even one. Not one. Okay. Just recognize what it's saying here. It says, no one understands. It says, no one on their own without God seeks after God. It says they've all together become useless. It says, not one, not a single one, we'll talk more about this, not a single one does good. Not one. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Romans 8, 7, and 8. Because the man, excuse me, because the man set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So their mind becomes futile. They cannot please God. They cannot pursue and seek after God in the flesh on their own. They're unable. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all else. It says the heart is deceitful above all else. It says it's desperately sick. Who can, who can possibly understand it? Okay. So it tells us about the situation of our heart. It's desperately sick. It's beyond cure. Who can possibly understand it? So I covered a couple verses there. If you're like, I'm not sure if I really buy into what Mike's saying, there's 150 more verses that go about it. Like, I listed a couple of them. Like, it's just, it's hard to conclude anything other than without God, there's not really any hope. We need God to act first. In and of ourselves, we can do nothing without God. Are you ready for page eight? Yes. I wrestled with the idea, look, I didn't ask to be here. Hmm. I, I, I was born, you know, without any help from me. And it's, it's just, it was hard to accept the fact hmm. that I had nothing to do with this. You know, I showed, up, I showed up here and with the sin nature already there, and I, and I had no decision about it. 
So, like, why should you be responsible for your existence and for your sinful nature when you didn't choose it? I mean, I, I followed, I believe, the, the scripture on all of that, but it mm -hmm. was something I wrestled with, you know. You know, if I've got the sin nature, well, you know, then why didn't you have me pop out without it, you know? <laughs> so, so she makes a good point. I didn't choose this sinful nature. I didn't, be, I didn't choose to be born with this sinful nature. So Romans chapter 5, verse 12 talks about the fact that, and this is a little beyond what we can understand, it talks about the fact that we basically sinned with Adam. Even though you weren't actually in the garden, Adam and Eve were there representing us. Okay, So on Saturday, WVU is going to play a game, and if you're a big fan of WVU, the kicker at the end of the game, if they're losing by two points, gets one second to kick the, the, the winning field goal. If he misses, all of us are sad, right? Even though you didn't get to kick the field goal, as a fan, you and your team lost. In a lot of ways, Adam and Eve represented us. They went out there. They're the ones that got a shot at kicking the field goal. Here's what I can guarantee. You and I wouldn't have done any better because you were born in this life, and even today, you didn't do any better than them. Not one of us showed up here tonight without sinning at some point in our heart, in our attitudes, or in our actions. So every single day, you and I have done just as much of taking a bite out of that fruit than they did. So none of us can claim innocence. So even though we weren't there, we've participated in it. Okay? Does that help a little bit? Okay, so let's go to page eight, and we're going to answer Carol's question from before. Um, the question is, what about that, those wonderful people you know, those good, decent people who walk the lady across the street, they buy free candy for kids and give them candy. Just, you think of the nicest, Mr. Rogers. Say, let's say, the Mr. Rogers who doesn't know the Lord, how can anybody look at him and say, how can he possibly be described by all those verses we just read? How is that possible? The only way that we can understand that properly is understanding it from God's point of view and understanding God's expectations of Mr. Rogers, of you, of me, of your neighbor, of that person in your mind who you're thinking is the nicest person you know, even though they may not know Jesus. Let's look at some of these verses. Um, I'm going to have people look them up again. Can somebody hit 1 Corinthians 10.31? Okay, someone from over here, 1 Corinthians 10.31, this side of the room, got it for me? Thank you, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Colossians 3.17, Mike, can you get that? Colossians 3.17, Romans 14.23, Carol, why don't you get that for me? James 4.17. Stephen, thank you very much. So while you guys are looking that up, let's just throw a couple more verses in there. 1 Peter 1.16 says this, Be holy, for I am holy. Be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1.16. So what is the standard? What is the expectation? That you are as holy as God himself. Maybe Peter was just off. Maybe, maybe that was only said once. Well, Jesus also said something like that. He said, Be holy perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect. Let's go King James. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the standard, this is God's holiness. Your standard is you meet him exactly at the same level that he is. Anything less than that, even one hair less, is unacceptable. Be holy as he is holy. Be perfect as he is perfect. Not 99.9. That sounds hard, but not 99.9. It's the expectation is to be as perfect as him. Let's look at these verses. For whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
So that's everything. It's pretty all-encompassing. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. That's his expectation. When you got up this morning, did you take the covers off to the glory of God? Did you brush your teeth to the glory of God? Or did you have a worshipful, glorifying God mindset as you brushed your hair and did your business? I mean, we all do stuff all day long. When you had breakfast, did you do it to the glory of the Lord? Like, likely, there's likely. I'm going to admit it. I probably didn't brush my teeth to the glory of the Lord this morning, but that was his expectation for me. What's another expectation? Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever you do, in word or deed, so with your mouth, anything you say, anything you do, should be done in the name of Christ and with a thankful heart. Wow, so it's starting to compile here. So every action, every word has a certain set of expectations. It's to his glory, in his name, with a thankful heart. All right, what else we got? Romans 14. Who had that? 14.23. Carol, was that you? No, I'm James. Um, Who had, was that you, Stephen? I thought I had James. Oh, sorry. Someone needs to be Romans 14. You good, Carol? Oh, did you say booger? Was that to the glory of the Lord? <laughs> my, my goodness, Carol. I'm not used to this Bible. Uh, Romans. Sorry, 1423. You're doing great. Got it, got it, got it. Stand by. Stand by. 1423. Gee whiz. I see the little print. <laughs> You're getting close. Are you in Romans 14? Oh, yeah. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Do you catch the end? Mm-hmm. Everything that is not done by faith, categorically, always, is sin. Everything. Everything you did today that wasn't done in full, complete confidence and faith in God, God looked at it and said that was yeah. sin. <laughs> What, what's that? Well, we don't have a chance without him. No, yeah, no we don't. That's, and we're not done yet. James 4, 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Okay, so that's this whole concept of sins of omission. So not only do you have this standard by which to live with the things that you do do, you have a standard to make sure that you do everything that you're supposed to do. So sometimes you didn't even do something, and that, that alone by itself was sin. So God's standard is God's own excellence, holiness, and perfection. It's nothing less. But when we just do the normal things, like you said, brush your teeth and stuff like that, if you're a Christian, aren't you doing those by faith, basically? I mean, you may not think about it, but you're basically, by faith, you're able to. So here, in the context of the faith faith verse, um, the context there is what you eat. It's actually talking about food sacrificed to idols. Uh, and what he's saying there is, uh, if you trust God, then don't worry about what you eat. Like, it's not a big deal. But for some reason, eating this food, if it shakes you a little bit, and you think, maybe I shouldn't, then don't. So the issue is, is in every choice that you make, are you choosing to do it, trusting that it's going to honor God? So to some extent, what you said is true, but there should be some consciousness, like here it's talking about being consciously aware of what's going on around you, and then moving forward in faith, in the name of Christ, with a thankful heart, always to the glory of God, making sure you do everything you're supposed to do all the time.
That's all. That's his expectation. At the exact same level of holiness and perfection of God himself. So, Mr. Rogers, all of a sudden, just came up short. So, if we base things on the standards of society, Mr. Rogers is like, he's in. He's good. He's, be he's better than most. Mother Teresa's in. She's good. But it's, that's not the standard. The standard is God's standard. And God's standard is himself. So, we all always fall short. So in my 6 a.m. class this morning, like we just had to sit there and say, it's 6 a.m. Not one of us have made it here without breaking some of those, those expectations. <laughs> so it's 7 p.m. We've got no shot, right? Like, <laughs> no shot. So we just have to acknowledge that, okay? So there is no one good. Not one. It doesn't matter if they meet your standard because that's not the standard. It doesn't matter if they meet society's standard because that's not the standard. So that's the answer. Carol, that was the answer to the, to the question. What about the good guy? The Bible said it. There's no good guy. And based upon these expectations, there just, there isn't one, not one. So the, one of the next consequences is this concept of spiritual total inability. Humans left in their dead state are unable of themselves to repent, to believe the gospel, or to come to Christ. They have no power within themselves to change their nature or to prepare themselves for salvation. That doesn't come from a spiritually dead person. Here's some verses about that. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. This is an interesting one. You'll know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? So every sound tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears evil fruit. A sound tree cannot bear evil fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. An individual who is described by all those verses before cannot all of a sudden bear the greatest of all fruits, a love and a faith in Jesus. God needs to first do something to cause them to look on that cross, what they before said is foolish, to all of a sudden say, actually, it's beautiful. God needs to do something. John 6, 44. No one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says again, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless, he granted, unless it's granted to him by the Father. We don't have it written down, but John 6, 37 says the same thing. When, God, when Jesus is repeating something, why would he repeat something over and over? For emphasis, right? So he's emphasizing this reality, this truth. So we don't want to miss it. All right, you want more verses? I'll give you more verses. Page nine. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, and he is not spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What have you that you did not receive? If, you then, if then you have received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift. What you have in Christ is a gift. It was given to you. It wasn't earned. It wasn't something that just sprouted out of your bad tree. It was something that was given to you. Okay? Even we talked about in Ephesians, when Matt preached like two weeks ago, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Your, the grace is a gift of God. It's something he gave to you. So, Let's just talk about 1 Corinthians for a second. That's an interesting book, and that's an interesting chapter. In the book of 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of division going on. 
There's a lot of pride and arrogance. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of outright sin taking place. So if, if the gospel is simply a set of beliefs that someone just looks at and just intellectually says, I'll buy into that. That makes sense to me. If that's all it is, if somebody just agrees and assents to intellectually a set of beliefs, then it would make sense that Christians are typically going to be just the smartest people in society. Right? If it's just a set of things that make a lot of sense, then usually the smartest people will choose the thing that makes the most sense. That's not how Christianity works. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, look at yourselves. God didn't choose the strong, he chose the weak. Look at yourselves. God didn't choose the scholar of the day. He didn't choose the wisest. He chose, this is talking about us, he chose the foolish. Okay, so you've got really smart people who are Christians and people who don't land on the same level on the IQ scale. Like, every economic group is represented in the body of Christ. Every ethnic group is represented in the body of Christ. It's not just the smartest and strongest that get it. It's the people that God moves in. There's a part where God is at work, okay? God's at work. That's a part of the process. 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God. Ephesians 2.1, just another reminder, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, okay? B, penalty. So there's penalties that are a part of our consequences of sin, the results of sin. Uh, Burkhoff says this, sin is a very serious matter and is taken seriously by God, though men often make light of it. It's not only a transgression against the law of God, but an attack on the great lawgiver himself. Realize that. The reason why we're punished isn't just because we broke a law. We are in revolt to the one who wrote the law. It's not that we just offended a written standard. We've offended the one who wrote the standard. Okay, that's important. It's a personal attack. Sin is a personal attack, and God takes it personally. It's a revolt against God. It is an infringement on the inviolable righteousness of God, which is the very foundation of his throne. We're attacking the authority and throne of God in our sin, and it's an affront to the spotless holiness of God. Theosin says this, penalty is the pain or loss which is directly inflicted by that lawgiver in vindication of his justice, which has been outraged by the violation of law, of his law. So here are some of the penalties that take place. And you know these, but we'll say them out loud. One is spiritual death. We've already said it, but there it is again, spiritual death. When Adam and Eve ate in the garden, God said to them, the day you eat from it, the day you eat from it, you will surely die. When they took a bite of the apple, did they instantaneously fall down dead? No. So the type of death he was talking about there wasn't a physical death. In that moment, they spiritually died. There was a death. There was grief and sadness, but it wasn't a physical death. There was spiritual death. It talks about in Romans 5.21, it talks about when they ate, when sin came, death then reigned. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, again, the description is we are spiritually dead. A death took place. <clears throat> Another penalty of sin is that we deal now with suffering and we continue to sin. We will all suffer and we will all continue to sin. We have broken bodies that lead to disease, pain, and discomfort as our bodies slowly progress back to dust. 
So when do we peak physically? What, 27, 28, whatever? 67. 67, all right, all right. Well, then I, I missed my, I'm okay, well, I don't know about that. Good for you. Um, so, so I peaked much earlier than you did. Um, there's that other side, okay, where your body starts rumbling down the hill towards becoming dust again, okay? That road is longer for some than for others, and it's bumpier for some than for others. Um, but we're all heading back to there. Death has a very good success rate, okay? Jesus got out of it, uh, but you and I won't, all right? So there's a bumpy road ahead of us, and that's part of the consequence of sin, is the bumpy road, the hardships, the disease, the way that we are actually going to slowly lose the physical body that we were given. Now there's a beautiful day coming later, but that day comes first, okay? That's part of the consequence and penalty of sin. Page 10. The broken world makes work and providing for our loved ones and simply surviving difficult and even at times painful. That comes from that conversation between God and Adam where he looks at Adam and says, from the sweat of your brow, from the sweat of your brow, you're going to be able to provide for your family. And when you're trying to provide, you're going to run into these things called thorns and thistles. Before it was milk and honey, like things were good. The Garden of Eden was producing wonderful things. They got kicked from that garden, right? And when they got kicked from that garden, the new world is a world of thorns and thistles. Um, if you go back, if you think about where you work or where you used to work, think about that person that you couldn't stand, his name was probably Thistles. He didn't know it, but that was what his or her name was. Like, those are some of your thorns and thistles, the difficult people and the difficult circumstances that you've run into, thorns and thistles. It also leads to simple things like broken sinks, leaky roofs, snowstorms, oil changes, and hurricanes. I love putting oil changes and hurricanes together, um, but like both of those things, are a result of the fall, okay? You show up and you're like, you're expecting a $33 bill, and they said for $233, we'll get you back on the road. What? So then you find out, anyways, it, that's part of the fall, okay? Things don't last, things degrade, things fall apart. Natural disasters are always on their way. And this whole time, this whole time, we're continue, continuing to contribute to our own suffering because we're continuing to sin. So we're forgiven of our sin, right? But if you get on the road and you've been drinking and you get caught, you're still going into jail. Christ forgave you, but you're still going to spend two nights in jail because there's consequences to our sin. And the consequences don't just hit you, by the way. They hit everyone around you. So kind of like in my mind, the way I view it, and this, isn't, this is not biblical, this is just Mike talking, um, so don't, don't take it for anything more than that. But like if you have this perfectly like <clears throat> calm, large like ponder lake, and you throw a rock in, right? you see these ripples. And where it's closest to the rock, the ripples are the biggest, but then it kind of goes out. So if I'm hanging out and I'm good buddies with Carol and I sin, she's gonna feel the consequence of my sin maybe more than someone who I'm not close to, okay? My family is gonna feel the consequences of that sin. It kind of affects all of society. The people closest to me are affected by it the most. And the people in my life who I care about, when they sin, I'm affected by it. So now imagine all of us standing in this pond. It used to have no ripples. And all of, a sudden, all of us are in there pounding the water with our fists, okay? All of a sudden, there's ripples going every direction. Now there's chaos. There's waves that are hitting you and hitting me. So our sin is still causing the chaos. Our sin is still causing the suffering. We can be forgiven and still be dealing with the consequences of our sin at the same time. But you don't have to eternally deal with the consequences of your sin. Those fall on Jesus. Um, but part of the penalty of our sin is of this ripple effect 
of sin and suffering into the, our lives and into the lives of others. So you're a contributor to the problem, and you're someone who's also dealing with the problem. You both receive suffering and you also give suffering. Okay? Both of those things are happening all the time. Um, let's go down to the next one, point three. Uh, we've already talked about this some, but physical death. So we know that there's spiritual death, but there's also physical death. And to dust you will return. Uh, the fourth point, and we know this too, but sometimes we just don't talk about it. There is an eternal separation in a place called hell for everyone who lives their life in sin, which is everyone, rebels against Christ, does not choose Christ, and passes on into death. That passing on is a doorway into an eternal place called hell. Matthew 10, 28. Fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Revelation 14, 11 speaks about hell again. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of its name. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Not temporary, eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So here we talked about the fact that God's invisible qualities are seen in his visible world. In hell, he kind of just removes that. Here we have common grace. Um, whether you know Jesus or you don't know Jesus, when you eat a steak, boy, is it tasty. In hell, that common grace of sunshine, of rain, of love, of relationships, of flowers, of mountains, of sunsets, of oceans, all that is gone. It's replaced by something that causes smoke. We've already seen this concept of God's wrath connected to fire. Okay, that's what's now experienced. And that, that common grace, that, that ongoing presence of God's beauty and grace and love that people see around them every single day, even though they're rejecting Christ, that is no longer there. There's no, God's love is, is not there. Um, and they're removed from that. <clears throat> Hebrews 10.27, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Again, you and I might have picked to have done this differently. This may not be our preference in how things end up and wrap up. Um, I mean, you can think of people who have passed on in your life already, and you know. Like there's a face in your mind when you're reading these verses. My grandmother is in my mind as I read these verses, and it's heart-wrenching, you know? It is. Um, I also have my mom in my mind. I have my, my best friend in high school I lost in my mind. Those two knew Jesus. My grandmother didn't. So let's just talk about death for a second. Again, this is more of Mike's ramblings, not scripture. But um, <clears throat> when you go to a funeral, okay, there's two types of funerals. There's those who have known the Lord. And honestly, at the end of that day, there's grief and sadness because God didn't design death to be a part of our experience in life, but it is now. So there's, there's a sadness there. There's loss. But on some level, like when I lost my mom, there's like, so her last words, according to my dad, was, I can't wait to see my new family. And then she passed. So like even in her heart, on her deathbed, there's like a thrill and an excitement of what she will walk into as she passes through this life. 
So it's hard for us to not also join her in that excitement. Now, I have a grandmother, and I don't know where she was spiritually. Um, we shared the gospel with her over and over again, but like, I just, we, we don't know. Um, so it's possible that she went through the same doorway, but went into a different place. And that's devastating. But here's what happens in an American funeral. In other parts of the world, and in other ages, this was done very differently, but we dress people up to look as nice as they can. We pick their favorite jewelry, their favorite outfit. We make sure they look as nice as possible. Um, people come through. Um, I come through. I'm dressed in black, but I look as good as I can look. And we sit there. We kind of we contain ourselves. We just do. In other places, in other cultures, it's wailing. No one cares how you dress. People are devastated. Like the, the weight and the reality of death hits you square between the eyes and you just let it go. For some reason, we've taken death and we've tried to pacify it to make it not quite as scary, not quite as devastating. So when you go to a funeral and you know the person doesn't know the Lord, regardless of how society treats it, you can be overwhelmed. It should feel overwhelming. It's horrible. Like it should be something that is slightly devastating, especially if you know the person and care for the person. So don't make little of death. Because I think in our culture we're trying to make little of death. Because if we make much of death, then we have to deal with the reality of death and what comes on the other side. In the same way we try to ignore God's existence, we ignore guilt and morality, we ignore God's word, we try to make little of death. As Christians, we know what's happening. It's either a moment of great celebration, though there is sadness and loss, or some, a moment of incredible desperation and sadness and it's overwhelming. Okay, So let it be that. Just let it be that. So regardless of how good everybody looks, regardless of how people are just dabbing their eyes, Go through it. I mean, it's normal. Jesus weeps with death, so um, we can too. So those are just some thoughts. Um, going into next week, there's a couple things I want you to know. Uh, I think next week could be really fun or could be a total flop, and I don't know which one it's going to be. What, what I, if you, I would love for you to look through Chapter 2 or Session 2 before we get together. There's this book that I absolutely love called The Doctrine of Repentance by a guy named Thomas Watson. And it's not so much focused on confession and repentance in the life of an unbeliever. It talks about confession and repentance in the life of a believer. And it's a little book, but I just know no one's going to read it. So instead of me saying, you should read that book, and then knowing you're not going to read it, I tried to summarize the book into a chapter. I took what I think is the best out of the book, and I put it into the chapter. Uh, so instead of reading a bunch of verses, I'm going to kind of work through that book with you, add some verses in, and we're just going to kind of learn from Tommy Watson, from the 16 and 1700s, and I love the book. It's probably one of my top five books. It really radically changed my perspective on life, uh, to see life as a pattern of confession, faith, and joy. And that's something I think God's called us to. So we're going to talk about that. Again, I don't know how that's going to go. Uh, so let me close this in prayer, and then you can ask me questions or you can take off. Lord, I thank you for each person here. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that even though we talk about our lack of goodness, the fact that not one of us have earned salvation, not one of us have contributed to our salvation, that we stand before you as our Savior, the one who has acted in and through our hearts, that you've called us to yourself and you've forgiven us fully and completely. We do not deserve that grace. There was no reason for why you picked us or chose us or chose to love us in the midst of our rebellion and sin, but for some reason you did. And may our lives be a reflection of that. May we glorify you in everything we do. May your name be on our heart as we act and as we speak. May our hearts be filled with thankfulness as we move through our day and we speak to people and spend time with people. May everything we do be done in faith to your glory for the love of you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you all.